Petersfield's Shine Radio. You are listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books. This month we're back at the fully open One Tree Books, which is brilliant if you love books and coffee as much as I do. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. Delighted to welcome you all back. I'll be your guide to what's just been published and what to look out for over the next month. Now, Tim, there's going to be a change to my backlisted choice for May, which is to do with what I've been up to recently. So I'm just going to leave it mystifying. Sounds intriguing, (laughs) Susie. And I'll be talking to prize-winning author of young adult thrillers, Sue Warman. And if you remember, we had the lovely Catherine Evans on the programme recently, and Sue was also one of the five debut authors who did an event at Petersfield Library, which is amazing. That must have been rocket-fuelled, that trip round Britain. Yes, it was It was great for us because we really got to know each other very well, as well as, um, you know, talking to lots of people and selling a few books. So, yes, it was it was very special. Excellent. So let's kick off with what you've been reading this month, Susie. Well, look, I'm going to start off by being completely different. I'm going to talk about Iceland. And before you make the joke, which everyone does about it being about frozen food, it was actually... Well, it wasn't even the land, actually. It was a Zoom conference. I know, sigh. But it was just fantastic. Um, I go, like every other year, to the writers' retreat there. And that's mostly American and Canadian writers. But they actually come from all over the world, which was more evident on Zoom because people put with their name where they were actually from. And it was really phenomenal. But the actual tutors they have are really high powered. So the best workshops were from Adam Gopnik on memoir. He writes for The New Yorker. Sarah Moss, who we do know, Ghost Wall and Summer Water. Indeed. We We talked talked about about. her book the other day, didn't we? Talking about her books. Fabulous. Meg Wallitzer, who I don't know, on Problem Busting. She wrote The Wife, didn't she? Um, ah, that's it. Which they made into a, into a film, which was quite good, but nothing like as good as the brilliant novel. There you go. So. See, I knew you'd know her. One of, well, the Labrador's favourite. I don't know why, but Carsten Jensen, a Dane... Actually, not a great Dane. But anyway, the Labradors adored it. They were just... So all the time he was talking, they were just sort of on my feet and going to sleep. It's very sweet. Anyway, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about Carsten Jensen because he's actually a journalist and he spent lots of time in the Balkans. And he was talking about empathy and how to engage readers in something in his case that was actually quite horrific. And it was about a village, a Croatian village, where they heard that the Serbs were retreating at the end of the war and everybody left the village saying, you know, go, go, this won't end well. And the pensioners were saying, no, no, we'll fight them in, we'll give them a cup of tea, we're pensioners, we're fine, we'll stay here. So I won't go into detail here because I haven't given any warnings about it, but it was not a happy scene. And as he wrote it, he realised it's one of those oddities where you write about something that's terrible and it's it becomes almost laughable. And I think it's 
a real skill to be able to still be able to engage, which is what he did in Trump's for those people who had actually read it. So I'm not going to talk about currently reading because that's taken so much time, but my head is completely full of it. And I think I would really like for my next book to write, a th- because I'm done with my Berra trilogy shortly, I'm going to write about a thriller in the Balkans. There, you heard it here first. Fantastic. Look forward to reading it, Susie. Well, I've been reading uh, a number of different things, actually. I read uh, a book called Tremendous Things by Susan Nielsen, who is a Canadian uh, young adult writer. It's a, it's a nice little story, actually. Um, it's about a boy called Wilbur, who's not one of those cool teens at his high school. In fact, his best friend is his 85-year-old next-door neighbour. And he's a great fan of Charlotte's Web. That's, hence, he calls himself Wilbur. It's not, it's not actually his real name. <laughs> Uh, things get interesting when, due to a mix-up with the French exchange programme, Wilbur is assigned Charlie to look after, who turns out to be a beautiful, sophisticated Parisian. So that's that's how the story, story goes. It's good fun, and um, I really enjoyed that. Less, possibly less possibly good fun, and uh, but still in, really very interesting. I just read Mrs Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, which I'd never read. I'd never read any oh. Virginia Woolf, and I thought Gosh. it was about time. Just a little bit about the book. It's all set in one day in, in 1923. It's the day in the life of this woman, Clarissa Dalloway, who's a, a government minister's wife, who's getting ready for a party. And it's about her reflections, about her friends, and about uh, her, her early life. So it's... Uh, which was actually a, a really cracking read. It's a short book, it's only 200 pages. I really enjoyed that, actually, in, strangely. And I'm currently reading... Um, a Long Petal of the Sea by Isabel Allende. And I'm only about 80 pages in, so I can't give you, tell you much about it, other than that I'm really enjoying it. It's set, starts off in the Spanish Civil War and, and carries on to um, Chile in the 80s, um, I gather. So uh, I'll tell you more about that next time. She was fantastic. She was on the radio the other day and she's got a new relationship. She's sort of in her 80s or something and she's got a new man. She? A toy boy, I think he's in his seventies. Uh-huh. Good right. girl. I mean, I love, I loved her, her early books, House of the Spirits, and the last couple have not been quite as good. And this one is back to form, I think. So well, that's, that's good. Very good. Good. Yeah. Well done, Tim. Dragging us back to books. <laughs> <laughs> Made by the people of Petersfield. This is Shine Radio. Well, it's time for our interview now, and we're joined this month by Sue Wallman. Now, I first met Sue when we were frazzled volunteers so at true. the SCBWI, uh, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators Conference, several years ago. And since then, she's published no less than five brilliant thrillers. Uh, and honestly, they really are. Her debut, Lying About Last Summer, was winner of the Zoella Book Club 2016, and the next three all won awards. And Dead Popular was WH Smith Book of the Month 2019. So I'm going to hand over to Tim because I probably already know too much. So I really enjoyed reading I Know You Did It, your latest one, um, which is a, I suppose I'd call it a. a You'd call it YA book, would you? Yes, it's interesting because sometimes people talk about my books as teen books because mm-hmm. they're sort of younger YA. Um, but yes, I, I I like to call them young adults because I think that's 
Um, well, I think it's, a, it's just a great thriller. I, mean, I think it doesn't really, <laughs> matter, doesn't really matter what 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 age range the, the characters are. I think, but uh, tell us a bit about the book, anyway. So, so yes, this is this book is based in the secondary school, and the hallmark of my book so far have been that they're quite um, claustrophobic. Um, they're sort of set in sort of closed worlds. Like um, my first book was was set in a bereavement camp, and it took place over the course of a week. And then there was a wellness facility. in My next book, um, and this one is set in a secondary school, so it's not entirely a closed world because there's things that happen outside um, school um, but there's still that sort of um, feel a claustrophobic feeling about it and it's and the main character is Ruby and she's just started a new school and on the first day um, there's a note pinned to her locker and it says I know you did it and um, she is terrified because she thinks that um, somebody knows about her past um, and we and in the very beginning of the book we know what's happened and it's that when she was four she pushed um another little girl off the slide and that girl sadly died so although it was an accident she's sort of grown up thinking of herself as a killer and that's sort of colored her whole life and um at school um things take a bit of a turn when a student dies don't tell us too much about uh, you have to be careful <laughs> yeah, yeah, spoilers. very careful but yeah. Um, this is actually on the back of the book, so... <laughs> I, know, I, never, picking... I never read the back of the book, no, so it always tells you far too it, much. It is interesting how, um, yes, the blurbs do give a lot away, and, and, and readers do sometimes say that. Um, but anyway, she finds herself in a very difficult position um, and thinks she might be framed, um, being framed. And she can't work it out, basically, and so it's, it's from her point of view. So here's a piece I've chosen from I Know You Did It by Sue Wallman. I've chosen it because it wasn't at all what I was expecting from a young adult thriller, and I hope you won't be either. So it's the first time Ruby and Ewan are properly alone together outside school, and they're in a hall, and Ruby finds a piano. I play with my eyes closed, imagining the notes soaring from the keys and hovering in the room, and when I open them again on the final chord, Ewan is next to me. That's beautiful, he said. What's it called? I forget, I say, because I don't actually know. Ewan is sifting through the pile of sheet music that I've left out. This is one of my favourites, he says, showing me something which looks like a classical piece. I play the first line. It has an epic grandeur about it. Like it? asks Ewan. It was used for that Netflix series. He names something I've never heard of. I nod and carry on, my left hand stumbling but picking it up again as I reach the haunting refrain. Keep going, says Ewan. He walks away, his school shoes squeaking slightly on the floor and he's back within a couple of minutes with a flute. The first notes he plays make my skin goosebump. I keep my eyes on the music, letting my fingers move almost independently from my brain, finding the notes with very little conscious effort and that glorious feeling I had when we were busking on Saturday returns. The end of the piece comes too soon. As soon as we play the final note, I start at the beginning again, and it's as if I'm in a bubble where nothing can hurt me, and the piano and flute together is the most incredible sound I've ever heard. I don't want it to ever stop, but we finish the piece for the second time, and Ewan says, That was awesome. Yes, I say, And then because there seems to be a gap to fill, I add, I can see why you like it. I get off the stool. 
I feel lighter. The horrors of the school gym are in a different part of my brain right now, tucked away. This floor is very shiny, I say. Is it slippery too? Give it a try, says Ewan. He's smiling as he disassembles his flute. I'm not normally the sort of person who would do something like this, but I tow my shoes off and rearrange my black trainer socks. Being in an empty hall like this is giving me a weird sense of freedom. I walk to the swing doors and count down. Three, two, one, go! Then I run as fast as I can to the middle of the floor before bending my knees a fraction and sliding towards the stage for a couple of metres. Woo! Did you see that? I know he did, of course. I get a kick out of the fact he's watching me, that he's smiling at me as if I'm actually entertaining, as if I'm light and fun, not some troubled problem girl. Ewan takes off his shoes, jogs to the start point by the door, and I count him down. He runs, squealing because his glide is much faster than mine was, because he's put more force into it. He skids towards the stage at an alarming speed and has to grab hold of the edge to stop himself slamming into it. He stands shocked for a moment before giggling like an idiot and I join in. That was terrifying, he gasps. So, I mean, you, you managed to get, you know, wonderful narrative drive in your, in your writing, which I really, I really enjoy that aspect of it. I mean, do you structure your books very carefully or before you start or do, you, or do they take you over once you've got going? So how I start is I think when you're writing a very tight thriller, you have to know how you're going to end. You sort of have to know who's, who's done it, basically. Otherwise, you could be meandering around for ages and um, it just takes twice as long to write the book. So I always know obviously how to start and what's going to happen at the end and then I have what my editor calls tentpole moments which hold up the tent so I would have maybe five or six tentpole moments so I'm sort of going from moment to moment so these are significant moments Um, and they might not be significant um, when you read the book through but they're significant in terms of plot as in somebody says something significant or, or so were they like like, being, like in a like in a tv series it would might be the a serial the, the end of the serial leads up to a big point or yes, crescendo or something possibly that or something happens but you don't know the significance of it until for, further down the line um but i don't plot really tightly no because you know things emerge when you're writing that you know happily tie tie in and you've got to, I feel you've got to be open to those when you're writing so it's a mixture of both really right and does I mean does thriller writing particularly appeal to you I mean, is that um that is a very good question I and mean, it's it seems a very simple one but when I first started writing I mean I've written all my life and when I was in my 20s I, I tried to write women's fiction and I um, had some agents interested but I, I just never um, produce anything they particularly liked and then I was just trying to find my voice the whole time and what eventually I discovered about my voice was it seemed to be a kind of young adult voice which is really interesting and I think well why do I like writing young adult fiction um, I'm 54 so it's not an obvious choice but I think I just can really clearly remember how I felt as a teenager and those emotions that teenagers today feel are exactly the same their lives are very different from how mine was but you know those those intense emotions of um say embarrassment and shame and humiliation and, and joy and and excitement they're, they're still the same also I when I started writing seriously I had children that age too um my youngest is 18 now I, I'm also a school librarian so I'm around young people um so 
I had this sort of young adult voice and then the problem was that I wasn't very good at plot. So by writing a thriller, I was able to have more of a structure and my characters sort of um, had, had something to do and somewhere to go. And, and that's really how I was drawn to thrillers. Right. Yeah, right, it's good. So you, you, you work in a school. Yes. Um, what do your colleagues think about, about you writing about terrible things going on in schools? Tim, they- that's a really great question because... I haven't actually directly asked them. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, This book, I Know You Did It, was written when I was at my old school. I just, well, I changed jobs in September. I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) That's another book. And um, when I, my editor at one point said, um, you know, is this realistic? Um, And it was about CCTV. um, And that's quite an important thing that happens in the book that the cctv isn't working very well and yeah that absolutely was true you know my last school you know things happened and we couldn't you know the cctv was down or the cable had been pulled out or so yes i think i think some colleagues are a bit bemused about um me because i come across as quite you know polite and <laughs> and quite innocent looking and then obviously there's this dark stuff there's, there's, there's um, murder in your heart yeah <laughs> yes. no, I... Um, and yeah, I think the students love it though. I have great conversations with the students and, um, that's, that's really great. Yeah. Good. And so you're, you, you work in the library at school where of course quite a lot of this action takes place in the library. Yes. It didn't happen in your school. Uh, no, quite a lot of action did happen in the library at my last school. <laughs> right. <laughs> All sorts of things, some of which I couldn't possibly tell you, but you know, there were fights and, um, you know, big arguments and, you know, really sad things like people would break up. I remember one boy in floods of tears and, you know, all of life does happen in the library. Right. Have you ever tried writing? I mean, you see, you try to write write women's fiction. Mm -hmm. Have you ever written anything else that, that any other sort of genres interest you at all or... I did have a go at writing younger fiction and that was tragic. I just, it just didn't feel alive. Um, I just came back to young adult fiction. That's where my voice is I would I would like to try adult fiction at some point I did have a go in lockdown I was writing this book so that <laughs> had a deadline and also the adult book I, I don't know I, I just need sometimes things need to percolate don't they and sure. um yes we'll see and which which I mean if you're a writer after school and you're a, you're a librarian in school I mean, which part of your life do you do you enjoy most what do you like doing? Um, well, it's a good mix. You know, I'm surrounded by books. I'm surrounded by my target audience. Um, but, yeah, the writing is is absolutely my thing. It always has been my thing. And I look forward, well, not all the time look forward to writing, but a lot of the time I look forward to doing it, even though I find it really hard. I mean, I'm, I'm on my sixth book now, and it, I still find it hard. And how have you found the whole process of, of publishing? And, you know, has that, has that worked easily for you, or has it been a, a, a struggle? Getting published was a struggle, as I think it is for most of us. There's this moment I know when I started writing, and that was when my sister was very ill, and I just thought, well, life is short. What what am I doing? I need to get a wriggle on and really try and get published if that's something that I really want to do. And it it was a burning thing. It was so burning, it was almost physically painful. Um, And I was a journalist, a magazine journalist, before I was a school librarian. And I thought, how hard can this be? 
and it turned out to be really hard. And from that moment when I decided to take it super seriously, it took eight years. And that's eight years of doing courses and, and reading books about um, how to write good plots. And, yeah, so it was a struggle. Because, mm. I mean, Ruby writes in the, in the, in the book, doesn't she? And, yes. And uh, I'm wondering if you, when you were a, a teenager, you were, you were a, spent your time scribbling away in exercise books? or, or I did. Yeah. I did. Um, I wrote my first full-length novel when I was ten. And my grandfather actually sent it off to a publisher. Bless him. <laughs> I know. And, and I got this delightful letter back saying, you know, how much they'd enjoyed it. Um, so, yes. Best than any other. <laughs> <laughs> In the days where, you know, they had time to, to write those sort of letters. So, so yes, it's something that's all been part of me. I've got to just intrude here because I referenced Adam Gopnik before and one of the things he was talking about was about publication for authors and he said basically it's a crapshoot and you can't odds that. All you can do is keep writing. That's the only thing you can control and I think that's what we all do. But he also had this theory or or he subscribed to the theory about the 10,000 hours. So he worked that out. His son voiced it. So 10,000 hours has to be consistent in whatever you're doing, whether it's throwing a pot or whatever. You have Mm. to just put the work in. And he worked out that was four hours a day. And he thought about that. And he thought, actually, that's exactly what authors do when they're really on fire is around the three hour thing so two hour good four hour you're beginning to now wane and it's not that good but around the three hours and then he worked out almost to the day that it had taken him six years to achieve success that's interesting I also have a theory (laughs) and I think that and it's quite a depressing one for writers because I think you can put those 10,000 hours in and be an excellent writer, but you might still not get picked up yeah. by a publishing house yeah. because there is that element of luck. I mean, obviously, you have mm. to keep going and you, you do have to be writing at a certain level and, and have talent. But, yes, I, I see so many brilliant authors who aren't published and you just think, well, why? And it's... Mm. Um, you know, all these various reasons. And I think in, it's very rare that you would put 10,000 hours into something and not get results. You're right. Uh, I think the answer is that, that, that writing has to be a joy in itself, or otherwise, yeah. you know, don't do it. Because unless you actually, get, unless the process of doing it is going to give you, is going to give you joy and, and release and all those things that, that um, a really uh, involving habit does... Um, unless it's going to do that, then don't do it. Frankly, don't well, don't do it for the exp- expectation that you're going to be published and are going to be a great writer because it might never happen. Yes, and to, and to be living your life with such unhappiness is is hard. But I think you do need that drive and 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 sort of feel almost that physical pain mm. if you really want to do it. I think. But then I, I agree. But it has to be coupled with. Um, joy as well and for me the joy comes when you're in the flow you know when you think oh I'm going to just write 500 words and then you forget because you know you're writing in a scene that's really in your head and it's just um you don't feel time passing that's that's the joy of it fantastic wonderful I think that you like your characters too that they become almost friends and that translates itself through to the reader Yes. And that's one of the reasons why I love reading <laughs> your work. And there's never like a villain that's two-dimensional. 
that you actually I feel love for... the characters. I really love writing authentic characters, and and but they're not authentic when I start. You know, it's just that process of uncovering who they are, mm. and you can't really rush that. Um, you just have mm. to. Uh, yes, it's like chipping away at a sculpture, isn't it? Kate Moss, who we also had on uh, fairly recently at Christmas, I think, describes it as a moment when the characters walk past her and she can see them and she thinks, ah, there you are. Mm. And then she sort of follows. That's, uh, that's lovely. I like that. Yes. Mm. So one of the things we do uh, on the, on the programme is to ask each of our authors at the end of their interview, what one book would you take to a desert island? Well, I did think long and hard about this um, because I was thinking about poetry. I'm not a big fan of poetry, but I thought it might keep me going on that desert island. (laughs) 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 I'm working out the meaning of of all these poems. But then I thought, no, be true to myself. And I've picked um, Will Storr's The Science of Storytelling because I would really like to sort of hone my craft. Um, I need to reread it. Um, It blew me away when I read it. It was very helpful. I don't know, there's so much about writing a story, isn't there? Um, And getting better at it and seeing it from different angles. And I just want to make my writing better and better. So I would take that book. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, thanks very much for coming in today to to chat to us. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book. And it's just to remind everyone again what it's called. I Know You Did It by Sue Woolman. And it is a cracking read. And there are some signed copies in the shop. There are. Petersfield's Shine Radio. So, Tim, it's our bit about what to look out for. So, over to you. Well, I'm going to talk about three books um, that are coming up over the next uh, um, month or so. One which I've I've managed to get an advanced copy of and read, which is just about to be published or just published, called Early Morning Riser by Catherine Heine. Uh, now, she's an American uh, novelist, young, youngish American writer, and it is a a brilliantly wry, laugh-out-loud novel with an ensemble cast of of characters and brilliant one-liners. The basic story is that Jane is a a young teacher, mid-twenties, in a small Midwestern city, uh, who is looking to fall in love and settle down. And, of course, the person she meets is... uh, and who does... Well, I won't tell you exactly what happens because you don't (laughs) want to know what happens at this stage, but Duncan is a wonderful character... Uh, completely unsuitable in many ways. But it is actually the most enjoyable book I've read this year. I really, wow. really, really, really liked it. So that's um, Early Morning Rising. I've heard good things about Catherine it. Catherine Heine. Um, the next book is The White Ship by Charles Spencer. Now, this is uh, non-fiction. I don't, I don't read an awful lot of non-fiction, but this book appealed to me. It sounds really interesting. It's basically about the ship that went down in the 11th century with the... The, the prince who was due to become king on it, it precipitated basically enormous civil war and unrest in, in England because there was no, no king when the king died. So, so it, an English prince, somebody would yes, have been an English yes, prince. The, the son of um, Henry I. Wow. And, and it, it, it becomes a kind of Game of Thrones power struggle in, in, uh, in the early more medieval England. So it's a, it's a cracking story. Um, Someone called it sort of medieval Titanic, the, the story. Um, and Bill Bryson <laughs> said it was as gripping as any thriller he'd read recently. So wow. I think it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, cracking story. So that's, that's, that's number two. The third book I was going to talk about was Troubled Blood, uh, which is the latest Robert Galbraith thriller. 
uh, Robert Galbraith being J.K. Rowling, to those in the know. Um, this is the fifth of uh, her Cormorant Strike series, um, and Cormorant Strike and Robin Ellicott, his sidekick. And the last one was Lethal White, which was on, on telly, if you remember. Um, it's dealing with a 40-year-old cold case, uh, and, you know, at the same time, he's trying to Cormorant's trying to deal with his... They're trying to work out their feelings for each other, which are obviously more than just um, work ones. Um, so I've really enjoyed this series so far, and um, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into trouble. But it's a great big doorstep of a book. I was going to say, how big is it? Yeah, no, she get her... her it's like like with the Harry Potter series, mm. they get longer and longer and longer. Mm. Uh, they get more and more con- convoluted with the plots. Um, but if you like that sort of thing, that's that's great. And uh, if you've got lots of time, and I mean, it would have been would have been a good sort of lockdown book. This one, I think, because it's uh, oh. quite a long sort of shaggy. So long she story. didn't have long COVID and couldn't lift it. Yeah, it, well, it's quite heft, a, he- a hefty tome. I see the latest William Shaw. Downstairs. Yes, Gravesend is is now in in paperback. You read it. I have, yes. I oh, have, no, I've, I've read really Gravesend in paperback, but there's a hardback, the very latest, isn't oh, the very there? Le- no, I haven't read that yet, no. I'm no. keen. Right. So now it's the backlisted um, extract, but I'm actually, again, because I said I go to do something different, so I'm going to talk about the objective correlative. What, and what, I can... what on earth is, is an objective correlative? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question, Tim. <laughs> is it some, really so, is it some writerly ask. thing, Susie? No, it isn't. And listeners, please don't switch off at this point. Um, it was, I first came across it. T.S. Eliot wrote an essay about it saying why Hamlet was a failed play because he didn't use the objective correlative. And like people, trust me, everybody's yawning here. Um, I yawned as well and thought, no, this is absolutely hopeless. Um, But the American author Anne Hood was talking us through it. And it is brilliant. Sue, I commend it to you. Okay, It's so useful because... It's where you take an object, sometimes an event or something, but usually an object to stand in for an emotion. So it's something that's absolutely physical um, for sometimes an abstract feeling. And it means you are not cliched. You don't go into the sentimental. So it's particularly useful. I'm really bad at writing romance, Um, but I found it tremendously useful to be doing that. So... People that write flash fiction um, and short stories tend to use it a lot. Poets first used it. The tip, if you wonder what the objective correlative is, is that often in a f- piece of flash, flash fiction or a short story, it's the title. So what, what, what is flash fiction? Flash fiction, like a judge too. It's like, a, what is a wireless? Um, Flash fiction is um, Sue. What is that? Is it fifty words and under? Or, is I couldn't yes, remember. If it was a hundred. I think it's a yes. hundred words and under. So it's a very, just a very short. But story. it's very very short. Okay. Um, but it has to have a beginning, middle, and end. It totally must be beautifully formed. It's like a slightly long haiku. Um, but actually, haiku are often really good examples of objective correlative because the whole thing is often standing for an important event or something. So that there was... Oh, I shouldn't write this down. There's one called... It isn't a haiku. It's a very short poem called The Red Wheelbarrow. See, there's the clue. And the red wheelbarrow, I think it's Patterson, the poet. Um, the, the wheelbarrow stands for the loss of everything good about rural America and how all their decency um, has gone for nothing. And, you know, the, at the end of the day... It doesn't matter. I'm just introducing you to a piece of fiction 
um, that Anne Hood read to us that I absolutely adored. And it's called The Wig. And it's a story by Brady Udall, which he first read on NPR, National Public Radio's This American Life. My eight-year-old son found a wig in the garbage dumpster this morning. I walked into the kitchen, highly irritated that I couldn't make a respectable knot in my green paisley tie. And there he was at the table, eating cereal and reading the funnies, the wig pulled tightly over his hair like a football helmet. The wig was a dirty bush of curly blonde hair, the kind you might see on a prostitute or someone who is trying to imitate Marilyn Monroe. I asked him where he got the wig and he told me, his mouth full of cereal. When I advised him that we do not wear things we find in the garbage, he simply continued eating and reading as if he didn't hear me. I wanted him to take that wig off, but I couldn't ask him to do it. I forgot all about my tie and going to work. I looked out the window where a mist fell slowly on the street. I paced into the living room and back, trying hard not to look at my son. He ignored me. I could hear him munching cereal and rustling paper. There was a picture, or a memory, real or imagined, that I couldn't get out of my mind. Last spring, before the accident, my wife was sitting in the chair where now my son always sits. She was reading the paper to see how the Blackhawks did the night before, and her sleek must hair was only slightly longer and darker than the hair of my son's wig. I wondered whether my son had a similar picture in his head, or if he had a picture at all. I watched him and he finally looked up at me. But his face was blank. He went back to his reading. I walked around the table, picked him up, and held him against my chest. I pressed my nose into that wig, and it smelled not like the clean shampoo scent I might have been hoping for, but like old lettuce. I suppose it didn't matter at that point. My son put his smooth arms around my neck, and for maybe a few seconds, we were together again. The three of us. Oh, poignant. I think that is so touching. We all, literally, there were 61 of us on a Zoom call and we all reached for the tissues at the end of it. And I think because it's not overdone, like you don't resist it. Yes, and the detail of the lettuce as well was so brilliant, wasn't it? Which we raised a smile for us and then straight into the... Yes. yes, tragedy of it. And the humour yes. loosens you up, yes. I think, yes. and the, the ridiculousness of the wig. Anyway, there you are. I rest my case, my lad. So that is flash fiction. Great. I enjoyed that. Um, so what have we got next month, Tim? Well, next month we're going to be talking to Lissa Evans, the author of V for Victory and also author of children's books as well. I'd completely forgotten that she was author of children's books. Yeah, she's written a, a book with a strange title called Wed Wabbit. <laughs> and uh, we can ask her. We can ask her why next next time. Absolutely, I'm fascinated to know that. But also, I've heard her several times on John Mitchinson's Unbound's Backlisted podcast, and she's just she cracks me up. Really, really funny. That'll be great. Um, and if you have any questions for Lisa Evans, do email us at team at shineradio.uk. Okay, well, that's it for this month. Um, do share any favourite reads with us at Shine Radio or drop into, into the bookshop. Um, if you'd like to catch up with any of our Talking Books podcasts, you can subscribe in all the usual places on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to get your podcasts from. 
It's fantastic. And Sue, it's been so lovely to meet up again, especially in person. Oh, it's been marvellous. I haven't done anything so exciting in, well, probably a whole year. (laughs) (laughs) Low bar, though. (laughs) No, seriously, it's been great. You've been listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Produced by John Wellsman. Rise and shine with Petersfield's Shine Radio. Rise and shine. Whatever local information comes in, you'll be the very first to know. You'll feel those ribs expand and okay, then I'm doing it I'm doing are it are you doing it yeah. <laughs> well, welcome back to Rise and Shine you're with Alan Cross this morning what could be better good morning it's good to be with you I'm Harrison RB it's the brighter way to start your day in the Petersphere as long as you're breathing you're doing okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, with you Vicky Rise and Shine weekday mornings from 6 with Petersfield's Shine Radio I think that's lovely